0: A new African American History Museum is being built in Charleston, South Carolina, and is set to open in early 2022. This week, a lecture from former Charleston, South Carolina Mayor Joseph Riley and Professor Kerry Taylor on the importance of this initiative. They're joined by Smithsonian Institution Secretary Lonnie Bunch.
1: You're illuminating sort of some of the dark corners of the American experience. Um, in many ways, the discussion around slavery, slave trade, and the Really, the origin of America is contested. Some people don't want to have these conversations. But yet, I would argue, you can't understand who we are as Americans without
2: understanding that early history. More in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
0: Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the how and why the making of the International African-American Museum. I'm Kerry Taylor, an associate professor of history, at the Citadel and Mayor Joseph Riley's co-teacher for this semester's exciting course. Uh, Mayor Riley will introduce our special guest for this weekend, but first I wanted to uh, briefly explain today's format. Uh, Mayor Riley and uh, Secretary Lonnie Bunch will engage in a fireside chat style conversation after which we'll open it up for questions. Uh, We ask that you uh, uh, put your questions in the chat function, and I'll relay those to Secretary Bunch. So, uh, with that, I'll turn it over to my colleague, uh, Mayor Joseph Riley. Well,
3: thank you very much, Professor Taylor, uh, Dr. Bunch. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, it's a huge honor for me to introduce to you a great American, Lottie Bunch, the secretary of the Smithsonian Institution and the founding director of the National African American Museum of History and Culture. As Professor Taylor just said, the semester's class is entitled, The Why and How, Making of the International African American Museum, and there's been no one more supportive of our efforts than my dear friend, Lottie Bunch. In 2005, Secretary Bunch was the director of the Chicago History Museum, one of the great history museums in our country. Its collection numbers more than 22 million holdings. Eleven years later, the $500 million National Museum of African American History and Culture opened. date, more than 7 million people have visited that extraordinary museum. While the National Museum was in its planning stages, I would call on Lottie every time I was in Washington. I was looking for guidance and encouragement. As busy as he was, he was always so gracious and willing to meet with me as if there was nothing more important to do. I remember distinctly the meeting in Lonnie's small office then when I told Lonnie that we had acquired the site of the former Gadsden's Wharf for our museum. Mr. Secretary, describe your feelings about the importance of the International African American Museum being located on Gadsden's Wharf.
1: In many ways, I am so honored to be with you because of my profound respect for the mayor and for what you're doing. Um, In some ways, museums always create manufactured reality. And in Gadsden's Wharf, you've got sacred ground sacred space. So the opportunity to tell important stories in the space where they actually happened is unbelievably powerful. And so I've always felt that if anything I can do to be supportive to help make your dream, the dream of many people, make that dream real on that wharf is very special. So I am in awe of you and all your colleagues who have worked so hard to create a museum that will help us understand not just Charleston, not just slavery, but understand us all better.
3: Well, uh, thank you very much, Lonnie, and I, I have quoted you uh, so many times. Just uh, what you just said, and and, and the fact that uh, that that seldom do you have the opportunity to to create a museum on a site so instrumental to and, and central to the history. Uh, Dr. Bunch's books are filled with so many great stories and they're hard to select. And I, again, commend it to all of you. But one of my favorites was was describing Lonnie's meeting with Princey Jenkins, who was in his 90s at that time, at a former rice plantation in Georgetown, South Carolina. Mr. Jenkins gave Lonnie uh, and all of us uh, excellent advice about snakes. Also about the study of history. Uh, tell us line with this very nice and, and uh, humble man uh, profoundly said about history while warning you of the snakes. Well in some ways you know this is an example of
1: sacred space. Basically I went up to the old friend field rice plantation on the Waccamaw Neck above Georgetown um, and as I walked down the slave street there were four or five cabins still extant. And he had lived in one of those cabins with his enslaved grandmother. So you could imagine for a historian, it's the Holy Grail. To have somebody be able to tell you exactly what it was like. And he was amazing. You know, he would take me to one side of the cabin and talk about how the enslaved did a hard sweep to keep the grass so there'd be no vermin. He took me to another side and talked about, you know, the role of children watching the chimney so it wouldn't catch on fire. He took me to the back where he talked about the crops that his grandmother grew to supplement, what they were given. And then we went to the fourth side, or rather I went to the fourth side, and he didn't come. And I said to him, "Um, please, you know, why why don't you want to come over here and talk to me? He said, nothing but rattlesnakes over there. (laughs) So being a kid born in Newark, New Jersey, rattlesnakes was not something I knew anything about. (laughs) So basically, after I stopped running, I said to him, you know, why didn't you warn me? And he said, you know, people used to remember. Now they forget. I'm not sure what a historian does for sure, but if your job is to help people remember, they need to help them remember not just what they want to remember, but what they need to remember. <laughs> and that notion shaped me for my entire career. Besides being terrified of rattlesnakes, that notion of helping people remember what they need to remember In other words, using history as a way to educate, to challenge, to prod, but to provide understanding, context, and maybe some healing and reconciliation. And all of that came from a person that I only met one time when I went back to the site. He had already passed. Um, And so the reality is the kind of wisdom that he gave me um, has been reflected in everything I've done since that moment.
3: Well, and I took that wisdom from your book, Alani, to heart, and, and we will uh, we take it to heart in the museum that we are creating. Um, you, you state in, in the book that, um, that the National Museum has four pillars, or should have four pillars uh, to support the, the efforts of the museum, not, not monetary efforts, but the, the story. And, um, and they're all fabulous. Uh, one is a paraphrasing, uh, uh, Mr. Jenkins. But um, one is that the museum should be a place of meaning and memory. Two, museums should illustrate stories and narratives, and human humanizing history. Three, uh, cited in the global context, and full collaboration. But um interested in in all of those, but I feel that our museum has a special duty to have its citizens be deeply moved by the stories of African-American history that our country never learned. So Dr. Bunch, please give us your thoughts about this, this responsibility of our museum and how we best go about it.
1: Well, in many ways, one of the great challenges is First of all, to make sure those stories, those histories, are remembered and well told. But the challenge is really to help people understand that those histories shaped us all, that these are not stories about African-Americans, for African-Americans, but rather, in some ways, this is one of the quintessential American stories. To understand our notions of spirituality, resiliency, optimism, where better to look than within this community? And so the challenge is to make sure that a good museum is like a two-sided coin. One side gives you this really deep understanding of a history, of a culture. But the other side ought to take that culture and use it as a lens to understand what it means to be an American. So that, in essence, the best museums of history help us recognize that the stories that we tell, regardless of what the community is, are stories that shape us, that inform us, and that make us better as a nation. So I think part of what is so powerful what you're doing is you're illuminating sort of some of the dark corners of the American experience. Um, in many ways, the discussion around slavery, slave trade, and the, really the origin of America is contested. Some people don't want to have these conversations. But yet, I would argue, you can't understand who we are as Americans without understanding that early history. You can't understand how our politics, how really our foreign policy, our culture, um, how it was shaped by slavery and the, the struggles over slavery. So I think in many ways, the work that you're doing is really valuable because it really allows us to understand something that often we don't pay attention to. But the other piece that I think is so important is that, Part of what you're trying to do is make sure people understand how this has been shaped by an international context. I think that in many ways, Americans, um, you know, we are in some cases very isolationist. Um, You know, until we had to get passports for Canada or for (laughs) Mexico, only 13% of us had a passport. So I think the notion of helping Americans understand that they've always been shaped by international issues and that to this day, we shape the world by our own culture. So I think
3: that's an important contribution as well. Thank you, uh, Dr. Bunch. You uh, you write so beautifully and you're a great storyteller. Uh, especially memorable to me are the stories of the story of the enslaved woman from an Alabama cotton plantation who arose each morning, fed and loved her children before a day bent over the cotton fields in hot sun, and then refused to let labor strip her of her humanity or hope. Or the story of your grandmother, Liana Brody Bunch who took in the laundry of other families, scrubbed floors not her own so that our children and grandchildren would not have to work on banded there are so many stories and we, we've just been talking about and, and, and so much so much to learn and, and so much to be enhanced and, and strengthened by. So Lottie, thank you so much for being a great storyteller. Thank you for being the most fabulous uh, museum director in the world and secretary of the Smithsonian. And uh, thank you for being here today and I will now uh, ask Professor uh, Carrie Taylor to open up the uh, chat room, and then uh, we'll uh, have questions of Dr. Bunch, and um, so- may, may I, Mr. Mayor,
1: make one comment before you go to questions? Yes, sir. You know, I think one of the things that is really important that I've discovered throughout my career, and I know you're working on in the museum, is the importance of women's stories. Um, often in history, women's stories get sort of second shift, And that the notion of leadership that women play in organizations, in movements, the notion that women carry a burden of struggling for fairness and freedom at the same time they're struggling to raise families, I think that is really unbelievably powerful. And I, I take great solace from the role women have played and recognize that I'm standing on a lot of their shoulders and I think it's important to make sure that people recognize that often history is told through the lens of a male perspective and I think that misses so much of what is essential that we need to understand about our past.
3: That's excellent and of course we had as, here and a dear friend of mine, Septima Clark who we will honor at our museum and she was a. Boy, oh, she was a, she, like Rosa's Park, she wasn't very big. But oh my Lord, the power of that bright, courageous women, or bright, courageous women.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
3: Lottie, well, thank you very much. And then we'll um, open up the chat room, and Professor Taylor will uh, monitor that for us. That's right.
0: Yeah. Just as a reminder, please uh, pose questions in the chat and I'll relay those to the secretary and to the mayor. Um, Just maybe as a, I guess, a point of privilege, I I was wondering, um, secretary, if um, you might comment on the museum's mission against, and I'm I'm talking about the the DC Museum, uh, against the backdrop of this dynamic period of political change in which it, it opened, and particularly I'm thinking about this phase of what we might refer to as the, the second phase of Black Lives Matter protests triggered by the killing of George Floyd. Um, has that, uh, you, you know, what impact has that had on the museum's mission and, um, you know, our, our thinking around the museum? Well I think it's had an impact on the museum and the
1: Smithsonian writ large. So for example, I think that what has been really important to me is to recognize that museums often forget that part of their job is to collect today for tomorrow. To make sure that um, we put in place what I call the rapid response team. I first sent them out to Ferguson years ago um, to Minneapolis after the murder of George Floyd. Um, when Black Lives Matter in Washington DC was having those um, confrontations, we were there to collect a lot of material. I also sent the rapid response team to collect January 6th. So that for me, um, what is important is that I realized that through many times in my career, whether it was at the Smithsonian or other places, that I wanted to tell certain stories and the collections weren't there. And so I felt it was really important, and I started years ago when I was an associate director at the Smithsonian, of actually bringing the curators together quarterly and say, what should we know today? What should we collect today that somebody needs to know 20 or 30 or 50 years from now? So that really is important to me, but I think it's also essential. I believe that at times of crises, cultural institutions have to contribute mightily making a country better, to helping a country heal, helping a country find understanding. I think that if a place like the Smithsonian is only about yesterday, then it fails. If it uses yesterday, help us understand today and tomorrow, to understand and contextualize the challenges of Black Lives Matter, or January 6th um, at a time when the public needs to find a trusted source Museums tend to be that trusted source. And so what I want to do is never abuse the relationship and the trust people have with the Smithsonian, but I want to use that to educate, to challenge, to prod, to help us find reconciliation and healing. I think it'd be very easy for institutions to say, that's not my issue. But I think that in a crisis, If you're not contributing, if you're not fighting a good fight, um, if you're a place of history and you don't use that history to help understand today, then what you're doing is making history nostalgia rather than the valuable tool that it is.
0: Terrific. We have a a question from uh, Professor uh, Tiffany Silverman, who asks um, uh, if you might address the challenges around honoring the past Uh, as we become equitable uh, to other perspectives. And I think specifically uh, she's thinking about um, monuments and, uh, you know, symbols of the past.
1: I think one of the things we know as historians is the evolution of history, right? The, The sweep and changing interpretations. And I believe very strongly that one never should erase history one should prune that history from time to time. Um, And there ought to be opportunities um, to do two things, to help people understand what monuments really mean, whether they're Confederate monuments or whatever, what they really mean and what they really symbolize, when they were built, and what they tell us, not just about the historical moment they're celebrating, but the moment where they were created. You know, like so many Confederate monuments, Were created either during the era of Jim Crow segregation or later during the Civil Rights Movement as a way to sort of send a different message from the changes that the country was undergoing. I think it's I think it's important to help people understand that. I think in some ways if I could do one thing as a historian I wish we could find ways to help the public embrace ambiguity. In some ways We tend to look at things, we Americans, like everybody, we tend to look for simple answers to complex questions. (laughs) But history teaches us nuance, complexity. It teaches us that there's amazing things that happen when you have those debates around the shades of gray. Um, And so in a way, I think that if history could really help people understand evolution and change and subtlety, um, what a major contribution we could make to a country. Uh,
0: I'm going to uh, paraphrase a, a question from uh, or I guess a request here from our uh, excellent student Melanie Delgado who who asks if you could comment on the, the changing dy- political dynamics from President Bush through President Trump and uh, and And I think she's asking specifically if you'd address some of the material you you deal with in the book.
1: I think that while it's crucially important for my success at the Smithsonian, I I think for any leader of a cultural institution, you have to become, you have to be political. That doesn't mean you have this specific political point of view, but you have to recognize, as the mayor knows, that you've got to build allies. But you've got to work with people who have politics that are very different from yours. So for example, when I came back from Chicago to become the head of the African American Museum, I knew I needed to create a bipartisan sense. But I also knew that candidly, when I walked into some member's office, they said, see this blackface, Democrat. But <laughs> I also learned, however, in Chicago that I became, I got a lot of support from Republicans from the north side, Democrats from the south side. So I used that. I brought, I had those folks from different politics take me around. So therefore, people could see that I could sort of handle things from a, from a at least a, as best nonpartisan as I could. It didn't hurt that a friend of mine became senator, then president. Okay, that, <laughs> that didn't hurt. Um, but the reality is that what I realized is that If I couldn't get every president to care about the museum, I couldn't get the support I needed on the Hill. Um, And I also thought it was a missed opportunity because I felt the museum's job is to educate everybody. And George W. Bush was a big supporter. In fact, I will always celebrate him because there were many people who said this museum wasn't worthy of the National Mall, that it should go someplace off the National Mall. And he stood up and said, why of course it needs to be on the mall. And I quoted him every time, and that helped. <laughs> with President Obama, it was an interesting challenge because initially, even though we were close friends, the notion was, you know, you don't want to be seen as simply the black president. So the notion was how to provide support. And if you notice, during his second term, he became much more visible and vocally supportive and became one of the great supporters of the museum. And with President Trump, it was important for me to be able to help expand the notions of what African-American culture was, its impact on the broader society. It wasn't always easy, uh, but it gave me something to do.
0: Cheryl Hardin Love is uh, reflecting on the impact of walking through the doors of no return uh, in the slave castles in West Africa, and she was hoping to get your thoughts on how it is we connect uh, the, the African and the American stories in both the, the museum in Washington and here in Charleston. Well, I think, I mean, one of the things is really to tell
1: the truth, that these things are connected, completely connected, that it was international considerations that led to the creation of the United States, what became the United States, that the slave trade is part of Really, it's the first global business. Um, and so really, helping people understand that is powerful. I also think it's important to realize that we are so connected today internationally that it would make sense to recognize how connected we were in the past. And I have been struck by something that happened to me. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to find relics or pieces of a slave ship. I went around the world, I negotiated with the Castros, which I was not successful, which limited my, which told you my limited ability to be a diplomat. Um, But I looked around, I had to bring together scholars from the UK, from South Africa, Brazil, and we began to map the ocean floor, trying to find these wrecks. And because for years, every summer I taught in South Africa during the 90s, that some of these folks were now museum people, and they called me and said, We might have a ship that sank off the coast of Cape Town. We think it might be a slave ship. Can you look at that? So we brought our expertise. We found the ship. It turned out it was a ship that had left Lisbon in 1794, went around the Cape of Storm to pick up 512 people from the Makua tribe in Mozambique. And then on the way back to the New World, it sank. So I felt an obligation to go talk to the Makua people. So I went to Mozambique. And the chief of the Makua people said, I have a gift for you. And he gave me a vessel, a bowl that was wrapped in cowrie shells. And when I opened it, it was full of dirt. And I was trying to figure out, OK, what, what, what are you saying to me? Um, and he said to me something that was really powerful that made the connection. He said, I would like you, my ancestors would like you to take this soil, take it to the site of the wreck, sprinkle it over the site of the wreck, So for the first time since 1794, my people can sleep in their own land. And I'm crying. I mean, I'm just so moved by it. And then a woman comes up to me, a woman probably in her 20s, and she said to me, my ancestor was on that ship, and every day we say his name. So it made me realize that this was not about yesterday. Mm -hmm. It was about today, and it was about tomorrow. And that helped transform how I thought about things but it made me realize how fortunate I am to get to explore the past through the lens
0: of museums. Our uh, esteemed uh, alumni, Norman Seabrook, has a a personal question for you, Secretary Uh, Bunch. Mr. Seabrook was living in Washington, DC in the 1970s and 80s, and he was curious about your experience of traveling from, uh, transferring from Howard to American University and uh, wanted your comments on that. <laughs>
1: okay, all right. Um, as the mayor knows, I always tell the truth. I fell in love with a girl at American U. What the heck? And, you know, and I thought, oh, what love. I'll transfer. We'll live our lives together. And we dated for a year and she dumped me. So, you know, what can I tell you? The joy of being 19.
0: That's great. Uh, My colleague, Sean Edwards, uh, uh, thanks you for uh, sharing your thoughts. Um, She'd like you to discuss history uh, from the point of context in modern times and the importance of that. Um, And says, you know, oftentimes we have requests for facts about historical figures and the context of those facts. Uh, you know, may not be desired.
1: I mean, I think that one of the great challenges of being a historian or somebody that cares about history is to realize that context is everything. Um, that without context, there's not understanding. Um, and so I think the public sometimes thinks that history is a simple fact, a simple date, but the reality is it's the context around that fact, around that date, that gives meaning It obviously gives opportunity for differences of opinion as to what that particular moment meant, but I really think it's crucially important. When I built the African-American Museum, I thought I had to do two things. One was I had to make sure that that everything we did was within the framework of helping people understand the broader context. But the second challenge was to recognize that context alone, sometimes leads historians and museums to really just be in search of the grand narrative. And I thought it was important to humanize history, reduce history to human scale. So both by contextualizing, but as you go through the museum, there are probably more quotations than any other museum should have. Um, You'll see many stories such as the story of, of Joseph Trammell. You know, we all know a lot about African-Americans who gained their freedom and had a freedom paper. Um, But the story of Joseph Trammell was somebody who had that paper when he gained his freedom in the 1850s. But he knew that that paper was the key to his future and his family's future. And he was terrified that if he carried it with him all the time, it might get destroyed by perspiration or he might lose it. So he wasn't very good with his hands, but he made what he called a handmade tin wallet, this ugly piece of tin. And he put the freedom paper in that tin and he carried it with him every day for protection, to protect it. Then every night he would come home, according to the family, and he would take out the paper and he would talk about the fragility of freedom, the importance of freedom, the rarity of freedom. And the family kept that for five generations and gave it to us. And to me, that's what I mean by humanizing. We know people have freedom paper. Um, But to see it through the lens of that particular individual was really very powerful and I think made it more meaningful for so many people. So that's what I mean about finding the right tension between contextualizing it but reducing it to human scale.
0: Our student Tyler Mitchell uh, has recently seen the Netflix documentary highlighting the African American Museum and he, he notes the role of Quincy Jones uh, in that film, among many, many other, uh, you know, celebrities who've been a part of um, the museum's creation. And uh, he was curious as to uh, what it was like working with all these uh, high-powered, high-profile folks, uh, each of whom, um, you know, were sincere in their uh Desire to see the museum succeed, but uh, also have other kinds of needs. (laughs) Well, that's
1: nicely put. Um, Basically, you're working with eight personalities who all want to be the boss. Um, And I learned something very early. My very first board meeting, right, I came to before I even started the job. They sat me down next to Oprah Winfrey, next to Bob Johnson, BT across from the head of Time Warner, the head of American Express. I'm terrified. I can't. I'm, I'm a kid from Jersey. What the heck am I doing here? Um, and so the next day after the meeting, because I didn't do very well, I was just like stuttering. Um, the head of the Smithsonian at the time called me into his office and he said, "You look a little nervous." I said, "How oh, you think?" Um, and basically, he says something to me that has been so helpful during this process. He said. Those people are at the top of their game. They're the best in their field, and so are you. And more importantly, they want what you're about to give them, which is to build a museum. So view yourself as their equal. Now, I never viewed myself as their complete equal, but, I, but it made me realize that if I led, I could learn how to work with them. But each one was different. Quincy Jones, I'll tell you the Quincy Jones story. It's the best. So I go to see Quincy Jones the very first time, you know, huge house in Beverly Hills. And you walk in, you know, there's like Oscars and Emmys just like laying on the ground. And I went, oh my God, it's Quincy Jones. And so I'm there a little early and he's finishing up a meeting. And he introduced me to this person and it was somebody from Sweden because Quincy Jones spent a lot of time in Sweden. And I had just come back from Sweden. I said, oh, you know, I really like Sweden. And there's a museum I love called the Vasa, which is about a ship that, sank, um, it's very important. And Quincy Jones went, wait a minute, you know that? So that's my favorite museum in the world. He opened a closet, and he had a whole little shrine to the Vasa Museum. And because I could talk about the Vasa Museum, we began to sort of have this conversation. The second thing that made us close was, all right, this is really silly, but when I'm 14 years old, I think the most beautiful person in the world is Peggy Lipton on the Mod Squad. And I forgot that was his ex-wife. So I was telling him about Peggy Lipton, he called her and she came over. I'm like, oh my God, it was so embarrassing. You know, hi, I loved you when I was 14. Uh, you know, somehow I wasn't that cool. Um, but that allowed Quincy and I to have a great relationship.
0: This is something of a follow-up. Uh, we have a, um, you know, some number of um, uh, staff members and other associates of the International African American Museum uh, who are with us today, and I'm, I'm wondering, and, and I, I know you've had conversations with, you know, the mayor and, and other staff members, but I'm wondering if you have thoughts on uh, maybe some of the mechanics of building the museum and building a staff.
1: Well, I mean, I think that, I mean, I wouldn't be one, I mean, there are many people that know much more than I, but I really think that one of the things about cultural institutions is if you do it right, you build a staff that's a family. You build a staff that recognizes that you can't pay them what they're really worth. Um, And you want to make sure that you give them the opportunity to engage with interesting people who come to town, but to feel that regardless of what part of the organization they are, that their wisdom counts. That no one has a monopoly on wisdom, and you want wisdom to flow from all aspects of the organization. I think the other thing is to recognize that what you do, when you do when you build a museum is you often don't see how your little moment or what project you're working on, how important, how transformative that is. I've always said to my colleagues, I need you to bring your A game. I need you to be better than we could all imagine. Because I don't want you to spend your time thinking, what does this mean to me? I want you to spend your time thinking, what does it mean to the public? What does it mean to ancestors? And if you do that right, then you'll get the acclaim in the sense that you'll do. And all the people that work on the African-American Museum feel this sense of ownership and wonder. And they feel that they contributed to making a country better. That was worth more than I could ever pay them.
0: Professor Silverman uh, uh, asks, for your comments on the relationship between the Smithsonian and the military around issues of cultural preservation, and she's thinking especially, uh, in particular, of the rebooted Monuments Men program and the Smithsonian's cultural rescue initiative.
1: Well, in some ways, I've always felt that the Smithsonian is this amazing place that's blessed with resources and expertise that not everybody has, and that it's got it has the ability to work with anyone. Anybody we call will work with us, will talk with us, will help make us better. And so I have been so moved by the work the Smithsonian has been doing for now generations, but especially over the last decade, on sort of cultural preservation, whether it is um, actually going to Mosul to help rebuild many of the shrines that were destroyed, whether it was helping Haiti, rebuild so much after the earthquake um, that happened in Haiti, um, whether it is the work that we've done helping communities that have faced floods in recent years in the United States. I think in some ways the Smithsonian has this amazing group of people who know how to preserve and conserve and how to sort of save things that are threatened. And so in essence the Smithsonian has its own version of monument men and women right? whose job it is to basically show that we can be of value in ways you don't normally expect. And I think that one of the things that I'd like to see more of is a closer relationship with the Smithsonian and the military, especially military museums and the like. Because in some ways, while we have relationships that are ad hoc, I was very close to the people building the Marine Corps Museum. um, But it really isn't a kind of a formal relationship. And I'd like to see more of that. Because most people don't know the largest collections of the Smithsonian that aren't natural history, you know, because Natural History has five million butterflies, but that aren't natural history mm-hmm. came from the military. Um, so much of the early Smithsonian material came from the military involvement in the West, exploration. In fact, the largest collections in the Museum of American History that I once oversaw are the military history collections. So there's been a long history from the 1880s
0: to today? Got a a couple questions here I'm gonna uh, try to collapse. Uh, The First of which is um, uh, uh, on the the current access to the museum, and uh, Donna Factor wonders if it's easier to get into the museum these days, uh, given COVID, and then um, uh, the second question is if, if you might talk to Um, efforts at volunteer engagement at the museum. How have volunteers been included in uh, the museum's programs and activities?
1: Well, I think um, the museum, like the rest of the Smithsonian, is closed now and digitally everything is virtual, Um, but to be honest, it's still one of the hardest tickets when I I open it. Um, it, it, it's, It's very gratifying, but it's also very interesting because all these people call me because I'm now more visible, you know. So I got a call maybe about a year and a half ago from this woman who, you know, said she wanted tickets to the museum. And I said, you know, I don't do that. My staff doesn't let me do that anymore. And she said, no, no, no. Don't you remember me? I was your girlfriend in seventh grade. Now, she said her name. I didn't remember it all. If When you are 13, you remember every crush you had. So I didn't believe this, but it was such a good lie I gave her tickets. Um, So I think that I'm flattered and humbled that people want to get into the museum. I mean, to give you an idea of the numbers, we expected 4,000 people a day. We got 8,000 people a day. And it is the most diversely visited museum of any museum in the world. And what really moves me more than anything else is 30%, 30% of the people who come into the museum say they had never been into a museum as an adult and that this is the first time they've done that. So it really provides the kind of educational opportunity I want, the kind of interaction, because you know, when museums are at their best, they create informal communities. People come together who don't know each other around an artifact or an exhibition or a public program and the conversations take it in so many different directions. And I think that's what happens time and time again at the museum. So I am so pleased, and we'll probably open as soon as it gets a little warmer in D.C., but I'm mm-hmm. so pleased that people find it. Um, it's become a pilgrimage site. Um, it's become a, a site that has people understanding the challenge of race in this country today. So I, am, I feel very fortunate that I was part of a group of people that got to do something that mattered. And on uh, involving volunteers. Oh yeah, volunteers. Sorry about that, I get carried away. No. No. Um, you know one of the things that was really important to me was to create a extremely active and large volunteer program. Um, a program that would do what you traditionally expect. Um, greeters and docents, but also a lot of researchers. So we have a lot of people doing um, one of the things we did we do is we transcribe the Freedmen's Bureau papers, right? Those papers that are really important but hard to read and hard to access. So the volunteers, we have thousands of volunteers who come and do that. Now they do it from home. Um, And so really the goal was I wanted as many people as possible to own the museum. And I felt that if the volunteers were a large group, they owned the museum, they became some of our best champions. Um, So in some ways, one of the things I love the most and I miss the most is being able to walk through the museum and just hang out with the volunteers. I learned so much. Um, I moved that they're 85 and they're 35. Um, and, and so I, I really think that I always think you can tell the success of a museum by how diverse and how excited its volunteer corps is. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. I'm going to try to squeeze in a couple more questions. I think we're um, running close to our deadline. Um, uh, Norman Seabrooks is thinking about recent attacks on voting rights. And he asks, how does the museum continue to address contemporary issues related to uh, civil and human rights? I think it is both
1: drawing from the work that's in the museum that talks about what it meant to struggle for voting rights. Um, how long a history it was, how many people um, suffered, how much loss there was, how much creativity there was in trying to figure out how to achieve that struggle. Um, And one of the things the museum makes clear is that one of the, as the African-American community made the evolution from enslavement to freedom, there were two things that were key. One was education, and the second was protecting your, your freedom using the vote. Um, and so we tell that story. And then I think we also, I'm no longer the director, they also do a really nice job of programs that connect the past to the present. Um, you know, For example, I know that when the John Lewis gave us some material about his involvement with both the Voting Rights Act of 65, but also the struggle to protect it you know, several years ago. So we try to make sure there's those connections. I think that the African-American Museum has, um, and I think that you will have the same thing, there's a benefit. People expect it to have a contemporary residence. And so as long as you build that in, then I think you could fulfill those needs that the people are are expecting.
0: That may be related to, to this question is, um, uh, the uh, so, uh, question is, what, what's, what's our elevator pitch for the International African American Museum in Charleston? If you know, Put on the spot, uh, how, how would you make that pitch to, uh, to someone as to why they need to visit and support the International African American Museum in Charleston, South Carolina?
1: There are silences in history that hurt us because we can't hear. And the story that you tell on Gadsden's Wharf is one of those silences. But if we can hear that silence, if we can be brave enough to confront that history, if we can learn from both the pain and the resiliency of those who experienced that, if we could learn from the collaborations that cross racial lines to end slavery or to struggle for freedom, if we can do that, what a nation we could be. And you can do that really very well at the Museum on Gadsden's work. Now, if, um, you use that,
0: if you use that, you're going to have to pay me, but no, I'm kidding. <laughs> to, are, are there plans um, uh, uh, with the African American Museum in D.C.? Are there traveling exhibits, or are there plans for, for uh, something along those lines? There have literally been 25 traveling exhibitions
1: Already. that have traveled the country. When, but even before the museum opened, I started with traveling exhibitions. So we're doing both traveling exhibitions in the traditional way, as well as now more virtual exhibitions that people Mm -hmm. can engage. Because my belief was that if the African-American Museum in DC is successful, but it doesn't help other cultural institutions, then it failed. Um, So what I hope the museum is, it's a beacon that draws people to Washington, but then pushes them back to Charleston, to Detroit, to Los Angeles. And that in essence, what we realized that I think has been one of the great contributions is the museum stimulate or created conversations around history. What we see is after the museum's opening, more attendance in African-American museums and museums that talked about the Civil War, for example. So my notion was that what you want to do is use the museum to sort of beat the drum for the power of history, the importance of history, and recognize that while there are stories that are told brilliantly at the museum, you need to see how those stories play out in Charleston, how they play out in other museums and other communities. So that's my key.
0: Here's a, a setup question. This, this must be a Riley relative, but uh, the, the question is, uh, have you ever met anyone uh, who does not know when to quit or what it means uh, or the, the meaning of the word no, i.e. Uh, Joe Riley. Joe
1: Riley is without a doubt a friend, but a special guy. Um, the, the times he served as mayor, his vision for this museum, his desire to share his expertise through teaching, and I, I wish we were all as good as Joe Riley.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what a nice guy. Well, there's um, probably uh, uh you know nearly a dozen other uh uh mostly comments of uh of thanks and and praise for your work secretary bunch and um but i'm, I'm gonna uh, turn it over uh, to mayor riley to close us out but thank you so much for taking the time to uh answer the uh, the many questions from the group here
1: Well, it's my pleasure, and as I said, you guys got me out of a budget meeting. So believe me, um, I'm a happy guy. Um, But I also want to say that, uh, and I mean this in all sincerity, my profound respect for the mayor, my profound respect for the city of Charleston, its history. um, And I have a lot of friends in Charleston who have made me better as a historian, as a scholar. And so I look forward to being able to, even if I have to stand in the back, to peek over someone's shoulder, to be there for when this museum opens because it's gonna be a special day because it's gonna continue the process of helping a country better understand itself, helping a country illuminate corners of darkness, find silences that need no longer to be silent. I think in many ways this museum will be transformative. Great, thank you. Uh,
0: Carrie, thank you,
3: Kerry Taylor, Professor Taylor, and, uh, and Dr. Bunch. Profound thanks. We, uh, all of us have seen and heard a great man, a great American, a great citizen of the world, and uh, in the, the Smithsonian enhanced by Dr. Bunch's leadership, uh, the National African American Museum of History and Culture created because of Dr. Bunch's leadership. All have contributed, are contributing to enhancing our... Society and 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 our understanding and mutual respect for each other. And uh, Dr. Bunch, you are you're one of a kind. Uh, You you among other things, a great writer. I keep pushing. I have no (laughs) stock in the Smithsonian, but uh, but everybody who's been on this today should get get a Fool's Errand. It's a wonderful book. It's informative and inspiring. And uh, and Dr. Bancilani, I look forward to seeing you in Washington sometime soon. And rest assured, when the museum opens in Charleston, hopefully in June, July of 2022, you will be there and you will be speaking and we will be standing with a robust applause and gratification for all you've done to create the National Museum, to give support for International Museum here and for your being an all-around great person inspiring to everybody who's ever had the opportunity of meeting you. Dr. Bites, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. My only hope is when they run me out of the Smithsonian, you'll let me come to Charleston. (laughs) The doors are open. (laughs) All right. Listen, thank you all very much.
3: Thank you, Lonnie. You're
1: great. Great pleasure with you all. Take care.
3: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. Be sure to check out our Afterwards podcast. This week, our guest is former Republican Governor and U.S. Representative Mark Sanford, talking about his new book and future of the Republican Party. Find it and follow wherever you get your podcasts.